Hey, Three Circle Church, so glad to have a chance to join you as we jump into our Esther series. And as you saw in the first week, Esther really is a, uh, is a grand drama. So we sit here in the beautiful Sanger Theater in downtown Mobile uh, and have a chance to really hone in on and learn from the story of Esther. And as we do so, it kind of gives us a reminder of just the sovereign hand of God. So it almost is like a, uh, like a chess match that plays out in history where you don't see uh, every move and how it plays out in the full scope of the game, but you do see these these pieces moving around the board of human history, uh, and you don't see these supernatural miracles in the book of Esther, Esther, but rather you see the sovereign hand of God moving behind the scenes through what seems to be normal events in such a powerful and supernatural way. Even how Esther became queen is an amazing story in itself that doesn't seem necessarily what would naturally happen, but God worked it out through the, his power in human history. So this week, we're going to dive into the next part of the story of Esther. So will you join with me in digging into God's Word? Let's look at that now. going to pick up in Esther's story in chapter 2, verse 21, where it says this, One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, were guards at the door of the king's private quarters. They became angry with King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole, so they were executed or put to death for this plot. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. So it went down documented uh, in the history for the king to read. So a time later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, and agitate over the other nobles. So uh, he's promoting uh, this, this, this guy to be uh, really um, the chief overseer or the most powerful person in the empire. Uh, and he's doing so about five years later after his life had been saved. So he promotes him over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down and show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct. Since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down and show him respect, 
he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided that it was, an, it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy the Jews throughout the empire of Xerxes. It wasn't just enough to get revenge on Mordecai. He now wanted to get revenge upon the whole Jewish people. And it's important for us to note historically, this goes back hundreds of years uh, in their history uh, of the, the, uh, the fight between these two people groups. And so he sees an opportunity uh, to really settle an ancient grudge. So it was the month of April, which on the Jewish calendar, this is important for us to note, it's to be really significant in our story, uh, was the time of the Day of Atonement, in the month of the Day of Atonement, whenever they had this, this process. So it was the month of April, and during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence uh, to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day was selected March 7th, nearly a year later. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered among the province of the empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of the other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it was not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they may be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large stacks or sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. So uh, he offered a bribe, in other words. The king agreed, confirming this decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, uh, son of Hamadatha, the Agrigite, and the enemy of the Jews. Those are great words we use every day, right? And the king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. So he turns down this huge, massive sum that Haman would have given to him after he exterminates the Jews and steals this money from them. He says, don't even need it. Uh, at the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it also was proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, by the city of, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. So such an amazing turn of events in here, and tragic turn of events in the story of Esther and how Haman quickly enters the scene and tragedy uh, and devastation unfold. And so I want for us to begin to kind of unpack this a little bit together today. So first of all, I think we need to just note the obvious thing there, and that is that sometimes your integrity will go unrewarded. You notice here that Mordecai actually uh, discovers a plot to take the king's life. He reports that to the king, uh, and often the practice in that day would be that he would receive a reward. And there would be a ceremony, and there would be a lot of, of, of attention given to him for what he had done to save the king's life. Yet it goes unnoticed, unrewarded, and really goes under the radar. You know, what does that boil down to and look like in our lives? Are we willing to do what we need to do, even if it's never going to be recognized? What does it look like in our work life? Are you willing to do the ethical thing, the right thing, even when the boss is not paying attention? Are you willing to do the right thing uh, whenever no one else seems to take notice? You know, whenever no one's looking, it often is easy to make excuses for why we can get away with not doing the right thing. You know, it's always easier uh, to whenever we're in our homes and on a public place to sometimes lose it with our kids. It's always easier whenever there's no one around to say things we think no one else will hear or see. But we need to keep in mind that uh, we don't just do things in response to what other people do. The Bible tells us clearly that our ethic while we do things as the people of God is defined by what it means to be in relationship to God, not simply in response to what other people do. And Mordecai leads by example in doing the right thing. And it's so important for us to be people that do the right thing, no matter whether anyone else takes note will we do the right thing or not? 
Because here's the bottom line. The bottom line is the Bible tells us very clearly that doing the right thing, our personal ethics, in other words, is defined by our relationship with God. In fact, integrity is not a reaction to other people's uh, reactions or the other people's things they do at all. Actually, it's a response to the fact that God is our Father. Let me say that again. Our ethics of the way we do things is not a reaction to what other people do. It's a response to the fact that we call God our Father. Listen to how Ephesians 5.1 tells us about this. It says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Church, we do what we do as the people of God, not based upon what other people do. We do what we do based upon the fact we want to emulate and impersonate God, who is our Father, who is a good and holy and just God. And that should shape everything about the type of people that we are and what we see as things we can do and things we shouldn't do. Because here's the bottom line. When it boils down to what we decide to do and not to do, if we just do the right thing because others do the right thing, then we can very often find ourselves justifying doing the wrong thing. Because often people will not do what they should do or what they ought to do. They'll often do what is pertinent and easiest to do and what makes the most sense for their own benefit. But as the people of God, we're to be defined by God, our Heavenly Father, who always does the right thing, who always does what is just and loving and merciful and right. And Paul reminds us that we do everything we do in relationship to God our Father, not simply in relationship to what other people do, which often will be misguided and wrong and even outright uh, evil, that we have to respond in a way to recognize we serve a Father who loves us and calls us to resemble Him in the way we live life. And Mordecai sets a great example for that of us, what it means to be a transformed people living in the middle of a world that is often misguided, where people often are, are going the wrong direction. What they choose is their standard for right and wrong. I love how uh, Paul unpacks later for us in the same chapter of Ephesians 5, he unpacks for us what they transform life looks like. And what it means here is not only do we have this standard of God that we relate to him as father, not simply react to what other people do, also, he gives us a different standard, and that is the lordship or the kingship of God, the kingship of Jesus of our life that says, ultimately, we don't serve civil authority simply or, or managers or bosses simply, but we serve a Lord who is Jesus over us, and we report to him, not simply to people that oversee us or have authority over us. Look at what he says in Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 10. He says, for once you were full of darkness, but now you are, uh, have the light of the Lord. So live as people of light. In other words, live as a people of light in the middle of a dark world that surrounds you. In the middle of bad choices and bad leaders and, and evil in culture, you live out a different kind of life. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Therefore, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Twice in those few verses, Paul says to us, and reminds us about the lordship of Jesus. That word kurios, lord, in the Greek means master, ruler, king. And it's the idea that we serve a different king outside of just civil authorities, outside of simply people that have authority over us. We serve a risen king who is Jesus who oversees us. And so it's important for us to know that we serve a risen king and not simply sovereign people who oversee our civil lives or our, our lives in our business or work or other affairs of how we live. And it's important for us to know that God is watching us and how we live. You know, I have a close friend who in, uh, who in his work, he has uh, a person who works under him that actually is a leader in a local church in the area. Uh, and he, he was telling me about how this guy uh, is, although he has this position at church, uh, he is one of the worst guys on the team. He's always making the wrong decision, always putting himself 
first, finding ways to cut corners, finding ways to get out of work, finding ways to just simply serve himself. And I just want to say to you, as the people of God, our ethic, our way of doing things needs to be defined by not only God as Father in the sense that we love him and want to imitate him and please him, but also Jesus as King in the sense that he rules over how we do work. And the Bible has a lot to say about our work life and personal life and how we do all those things in relationship to God, not simply in relationship to other people. Our personal ethics matters. Integrity is what we do when no one's watching. And we recognize that even though other people don't see, God always sees a loving Heavenly Father is looking down on us, wanting us to look more like Him. And a sovereign King uh, is looking over us and exerting authority that supersedes uh, what other authorities may do uh, around us, that we have to live in relationship to God and not just in response to other people. Personal ethics matters. But also we step into uh, uh, some understanding here about what our ethics looks like to whenever we step into the workplace, whenever we step into the marketplace. So how does our ethics look whenever we step into uh, civil things and when we talk about matters of authority on a larger scale? So we need to see here a really important principle for Mordecai's life, and that is this. We honor authorities, but we worship one. We honor authorities, but we worship one. So we're not, in, we're not entirely sure about what every part of this dynamic played out in Mordecai's life. We do know he refused to bow the knee to Haman. He refused to acknowledge him as, as lord or king over him, refused to worship him, because often in those days it was very common in practice that anyone that was a leader was almost seen as a divine right king. And they would, they would say to themselves that I, you know, I'm a messenger from God, or even some would say I am God, and you're to, you're to worship me and give me a singular devotion that we would just say as followers of God, followers of Jesus, simply is unacceptable. Mordecai demonstrates for that for us and the importance of bowing down to one, but also shows us how he, he gave honor to the king without bowing knee uh, down to worship Haman. And so he demonstrates for us that he honored the king, yet the king is not necessarily an honorable person. And that's the importance of us as followers of Jesus being able to give honor, even though we may not respect someone. And, and often we're going to find this, church. To be, to be frank, there's going to be times you're going to have a boss you simply do not respect. He or she may do things that you just see as not right and not good. And you may not like their leadership style. You may not like anything about them. Yet you are called to give them the respect that, that is part of their position and be able to give honor as much as honor can be given. There were so many things that Mordecai could have identified in Xerxes' life that made him not a good ruler. First of all, uh, he was not a great leader uh, as of the nation. He had just led uh, the Persians in a failed attempt to conquer the Greeks, uh, and it was an abysmal defeat. Uh, he had cost uh, the kingdom all kinds of money, uh, all kinds of uh, their, 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 their warfare and instruments of warfare, and they had lost massive amounts of momentum as a kingdom as a result of his poor leadership. But not only that, you see it in even the situation we're looking into. Uh, King Xerxes, not only was he irresponsible, he just gives his signet ring uh, to Haman and says, go and do with it as you please. This guy could be writing checks on the kingdom, doing whatever he wanted with this ring, sign any document he wanted, yet it's just in his hand. He's not a very responsible and thoughtful leader. He's led them in this failed attempt militarily. He's now giving out a signet ring for this guy to, to run around and, and buy him a house you know, on MTV Cribs or whatever he wants to do. No accountability whatsoever. He's not a great ruler. He's not a, a great leader. And, and even more so, he's not an ethical leader. Very quickly after Haman gives him this idea to, of genocide, to massacre a whole people, he just gives him a signet ring and says, go ahead with it. 
He's not, a, he's not a just ruler. He's not a responsible ruler. He's not a good ruler. Yet, we see Mordecai extending honor as much as possible and setting an example for us that we seek to honor those in authority, yet we worship God alone. You know, Mordecai's response kind of reminds me of a guy about 100 years, uh, a few guys about 100 years before uh, this story takes place. And that's some guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They served under another king that was ruling the known world in that time, King of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with his accomplishments in war and so impressed with his conquest to conquer the known world that he built about a 90-foot-tall statue resembling himself. And then he called for all the subjects and all the leaders of the kingdom uh, to come to a public place. And as they played music, he commanded all those people to bow down and worship this statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being uh, children of Israel uh, and serving there in his kingdom as some of the brightest uh, and greatest leaders of their generation in the Jewish kingdom, knew they could not disobey God's command to worship him and him alone. And so whenever all these thousands of leaders bowed down their knee and worshipped this huge statue of Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to give way. They refused to bow down and worship a man because they wanted to worship God alone. And if you know the story, you know that after several times of disobedience, they were bound and thrown into a huge fiery furnace intending them to be burned to death. But instead, God sovereignly delivered them. But they, just like Mordecai, show us that we can extend honor to human leaders, but we worship one. We worship one God, and he's the king. He's our heavenly father. He's the one that calls the shots. And we simply will not bow down to worship those human leaders. We'll simply seek to extend honor where honors do, but we can only worship our sovereign and good king, God. We won't worship those who lead us. But it gives us a good understanding here of what it means to be people that stand up and do what we're called to do, even when it's unpopular, even when it's not right. And so we have to be able to, to stand up and do what we're called to do, even when it's, it's unpopular for those around us. But also he sets a great example to us of what it means to, to live out our civil responsibility. What does our responsibility look like as followers of God in this world? So what is the, what is the line for civil disobedience, in other words? What is the line for whenever we refuse to do what those in authority have told us to do. Well, I love how uh, we're given some clarity about this in Romans chapter 13, where Paul says to us here in verse 1, everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Then he moves on to say in verse 4, the authorities are God's servants sent for good, but you are doing wrong, of course, you should be afraid. For they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent from the very purposes of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Paul gives us some guidelines there saying, as much as you can fall under the authority of those that are civilly leading wherever you live as much as possible. And so Mordecai sets an example for us that we only disobey when there would be a line in the sand where we would have to disobey God to obey civil authorities. Whenever they say to you, you can't proclaim the name of Jesus or you can't do this thing to obey God, that is the line which we are unwilling to cross in which we say we, we, we honor all authorities, but we worship one God alone. And whenever you ask us to disobey God and obey you, we're going to have to refuse to cross 
that line. And for many of us in our lives, we need to understand what that means. Because sometimes we can draw lines in the sand that are not God-given lines. They're not commands God has given us. They're just preferences. So we don't like a political leader or we don't like some ideas. And so we say, well, I'm going to step out of line because I don't care for that. I don't like that. God says we need as much as possible seek to extend honor and obey unless they ask for us to disobey him. And Mordecai sets an example there. I'm going to extend honor. I'm going to obey But yet, if you ask me to step out of line with obeying my God, I'm going to have to obey him and not you. Because here's the bottom line. If we give our our allegiance, if we give our love to leaders and simply parties and not to, to following God as king, then sometimes we can get led into some evil and wicked things if we follow that. Because here's the bottom line, church. Leaders will not always do what's just. King Xerxes shows that here. Haman shows that here. But as kingdom people, we have to stand for justice. As kingdom people, we have to stand for what is good, irregardless of what leaders say is good. Irregardless of cultural norms or taboos, we have to stand up for what God says is good and right and just. Listen how God explains this to us in Micah 6, 8. Oh, people, the Lord has told you what is good and what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We should be people of justice as followers of God. And let me just go ahead and clarify. Immediately, when even I say that, that word justice, you've got things running through the reel of your mind. You, you may even identify very quickly with a party uh, or, with, or with a specific leader. And I just want to say to you, that is not where I'm going at all. I want to say to you that if we're really going to be people of God, uh, then we really have to stand outside of parties and outside of individual leaders and stand up as kingdom People And Esther and Mordecai show us the significance of being a kingdom culture in the middle of another culture. Because we have to recognize uh, that God is coming and he's king. And a sovereign king doesn't have natural or linguistic uh, borders. This king is king over all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and all people. And simply national policies or political ideologies, Jesus is bigger than that. And when it boils down to being kingdom people, we need to stand up for the voiceless. We need people that value people as made in the image of God and not simply vote based upon a party or an ideology, but based upon being a kingdom people that seek justice and love mercy and stand up for people being made in the image of God from the moment of conception to the moment of their last breath. We should be people that stand up for the marginalized and recognize that often without and throughout human history, leaders use their power to abuse and marginalize people, whether it's based upon their ethnicity or their economic status. And when they do that, we need to be people that stand up and say, All people have inherent value and worth and dignity, and it's not based upon where they live or the color of their skin or the language they speak. It's based upon being made in the image of God. That is a kingdom ethic, not a national ethic, a kingdom ethic. And that needs to be what defines us as the people of God. And Mordecai and Esther and other Jews in this story, why why Haman can say what he did, he said, look, these people have a different style of living. They are living in a way that stands out. They are a kingdom in the middle of your kingdom, King Xerxes, and they should be exterminated for that. We should be a people that live as much as possible, extending honor to those in authority, yet we have a way of living that is distinct, and we stand up, as Ephesians tells us, as people of light in the middle of a dark land. That is our calling as the church. And so we should be people that stand up, no matter what leaders do, We should be led by a bigger kingdom and a bigger king and a bigger ethic than other people are led by. And this story of Esther and this story of Mordecai tells us so much about that. You know, we end this part of this story uh, with the ultimate cliffhanger. 
Because what you have is you have this order of extermination that's sent out for Queen Esther and her entire nation. And as that, as, as that order goes out, you see the king uh, and his basically prime minister, Haman, sit down having a poker party, getting drunk as this order of extermination goes out to all the Jews in his kingdom. And, and there's, this, there's this, this, this sense in which the people of God sitting in the month which they celebrate, the Day of Atonement, which they celebrate the Passover, that was the time that God supernaturally delivered them from Egypt and rescued them and brought them to a promised land. They find themselves on the precipice of extermination, asking the question, God, where are you? God, where are you in our suffering? God, are you still writing a story? God, are you still going to sovereignly be good and rescue your people? God, that we serve as king above any national king, are you going to continue to be faithful to your people? Are you going to once again deliver us? And they stand there asking questions. And maybe you in your life are wondering about the kingship of God, the things that are going on in our culture and our nation. You're wondering, where is God in all this? You're asking God, I don't see your hand writing this story. Where are your purposes and plan in my life, in our culture, in our country? Where are you in history right now? And so Haman and Esther had to look around and say, God, where are you? I just want to remind you that the, the promises throughout all of God's word is that God is at work and God is sovereign. And that chess match, which we only see moves, God sees the whole match of human history. And he is writing a plan that is perfect and beautiful and amazing. I love what C.H. Spurgeon reminds us of when it comes to the sovereignty and the goodness of God, our King, even in the middle of tragedy and uncertainty. And he says this, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Sometimes we do not understand everything God is doing, and often we will not see the big picture. But we can trust that God is good and God is sovereign and God is at work. And in the middle of what seems to be uncertainty and what seems to be tragedy, we can know that God is good God is at work and God is faithful. In the middle of Esther's story, in the middle of an order of extermination, in the middle of trying to figure out how to honor authorities yet worship God, much like our culture and our context today, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be people of God that are defined not simply by what is acceptable, but what God would accept? We live as people that are living a calling in a kingdom that goes beyond what we see other people living, that we're defined by a father who is our God who loves us, and we live for his acceptance and his approval, and he defines our lives. And when we do that, church, we will be a people of light in the middle of darkness. We will be a people of hope in the middle of hopelessness. We will be a people among a people that demonstrate a kingdom that is bigger than the national or civil authority. It will be the kingdom of God as we live that out, as we seek to be people of integrity in our homes, in our workplace, and as we do life. And it will honor God like, like Esther and Mordecai honor God in the middle of a trying time in captivity. They represented people of the kingdom. And church, I pray we can do the same.